Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. I have to tell you something, people. You know I'm a big music fan. I love the music, and Joanne has Sirius in her car, and we listen to Sirius at home, but what I've noticed is in L.A. is when you have classic radio, all they've been playing lately, I swear to God, like every other song is ACDC and Guns N' Roses. Now, I love I love both bands. They're, they're excellent rock and roll bands. You know, I've listened to their music. But I wish they would just change it because it's getting crazy where every other song is them. And they throw in some Queen every once in a while. So I'm just saying, people, change up the music because, you know, we got to keep rocking. Anyway, we have a great show today. Uh, my, my guest is uh, he's a great actor. He's been working for such a long time, constantly working. My guest is Michael Norrie. How you doing, Michael? Hey, Steve. Good morning, buddy. Or good afternoon. Yeah, you're, well, you're, are you in L.A.? I'm in L.A. Okay, so yeah, we're both in L.A. So I guess it's like morning, afternoon. So what, what's, what's, yeah. your, what's, what's your music taste? You, well, you know, you, you're, you're, you've been around, you've been in the business, you're, you're a popular actor, you've probably met a lot of people, you were in Flashdance, which is music. What, what kind of music do you listen to, like, on a daily basis? James Taylor. Okay, so you're, you're like the mellow guitarist, the, the, the singer-songwriter. Yeah, very much, and um, I'm, I'm very excited that he was. Uh, no, he's been honored so much this year with the uh, the Medal of Freedom and then the Kennedy Center honors last night. Um, and he's really provided the soundtrack to my life. I mean, from the late '60s, early '70s, and uh, we've become friends over the years. And um, it's just always uh, there are very few mus- musicians that uh, he's one of the one of the musicians that I have had the pleasure of getting to know personally, uh, who has really touched my life and, uh, because of his music and, and the lyrics, uh, his, his music and lyrics have been like a soundtrack to my life. Um, of course, but yeah, but I'd say that my, my orientation, my taste is, is folk music, but I also have a, an eclectic taste in, in music. I love uh, Bryn Terfel, who is one of the got one of the greatest voices in in music. He's an opera singer, uh, but he sings classics. He's from Wales. Uh, Placido Domingo, uh, Pavarotti. Um, so I love Celtic music. Um, I play guitar. I write music myself. So. Um, I'd say the only kind of music that I'm not into is hip hop. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Everyone's, everyone's different taste. Now, how did you meet James Taylor? How did that come about? I mean, because it, you know, did you, did you, did he hear about that you liked him? I mean, because you were you're a uh, famous actor. Or how did it come about that you met James Taylor? And how did you cultivate a friendship with him? Because to me, that is just so cool. Yeah, it is cool. In 1980, I was doing a television series called The Gangster Chronicles. And I was playing Lucky Luciano. One of these uh, scenes uh, took place at a home, and the the home that uh, we used was in Pasadena. And the the home belonged to a fabulous musician and one of the most iconic bass players in the business, named Leland Sklar. Um, so I met Leland and his wonderful wife Maureen, who cooked baked cakes and cookies for, for the crew. Lee and I became friends, and he invited me to, in 1980, he was doing a, a tour with James. He invited me to a rehearsal. 
and that's when I first met James. And uh, so that was 1980, and then since then I have gone to his concerts, and then I had the great pleasure of uh, being on his tour bus with him in 1977. And uh, so I've become friendly with members of his band, and, uh, and I just always love going to his concerts and hearing his music. He's such a wonderful man. And then we, we did a train ride together in, uh, in Boston in 19... I don't know, maybe it was in 2000, he was uh, recording an album in Boston with a, a great producer named Russ Teitelman, who's a friend of mine, and Russ has produced many great albums, Eric Clapton's Unplugged album. And so it was just the three of us in the studio in Boston. And then around that time, James and I shared an Amtrak uh, ride from, uh, from uh, Boston to New York, He's just, he's just a wonderful human being, great guy. Uh, yeah, so it's a great, great pleasure to know that man and to, like, uh, just such a fan of his music. Now, you said you met him, uh, well, you met him after the, the show, the miniseries you played, Lucky Luciano. As a kid, yeah. I know, well, as a kid, you grew up in the D.C. area, I believe, right? I was born in D.C. and grew up in New Jersey. Oh, what part Manhattan. of, what part of Jersey? Bergen County, Alpine. Okay, I'm a Cherry Hill guy. I'm a South Jersey guy. So, you know, it's always, okay. it's always yeah. good to meet a fellow yeah. Jersey guy. Now, now, when did you know you wanted to start acting? Was it at a young age, or was your household uh, a uh, very creative household? How did you start on this path? Because I'm, I'm guessing, you know, just it just seems like in the last 20 years, it's accepted by parents when kids say, oh, yeah, I want to be an actor. But I mean, but back then it's you always people go, oh yeah, get a, get a degree, you know, to fall back on. How did you start your career? And were you as a kid? Did you want to act, or how did the whole path happen? <laughs> you just told my life story there. Uh, the answer is in your question, Steve. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I I I I knew what I didn't want to do. I think what what propelled me into uh, into acting was working for three months with my dad and his life insurance company. And it was so against my sensibility. Um, I, I don't remember whether he said you're fired or I said I quit. Uh, <laughs> who said what first? But um, it was that day, and we both agreed that I was not cut out for office work. And uh, that was back in, in 1967, uh, just out of college. And uh, I got a job waiting tables in New York, started auditioning for stuff, and landed my first job on in a Broadway musical called, and not a musical, it was a, it was a Broadway comedy called 40 Carats with Julie Harris. And that was a big deal because I had never done any acting outside of school. Um, I was terrified. I had no technique. And uh, <laughs> I was with nerves, but um, my father, at the time, being a businessman, and uh, thought that I was crazy and uh, being irresponsible, and he encouraged me to get a real job so that I could have financial security and stability in my life. I mean, he was really, he had my, my best interest at heart, um, but we had a very uh, poignant meeting once. I was driving in his car with him. 
and he was encouraging me to get a, a steady regular gig and do acting as a like to do a community theater and uh, uh, I, I, and he said you know life is about compromise Michael and I said well pop I said do you like what you do and he admitted to me that he had disliked every day of being a salesman and uh, and, I, and, he, and then he, he talked about compromise and I said well you know I said, Pop, because of your compromise, you have made it possible for me to not have to compromise. Uh, you have provided me with the luxury of being able to follow my heart and my passion. So that was in the 60s. Fast forward to 97, when I was doing Victor Victoria on Broadway with Julie Andrews. My father was standing outside, hawking tickets, standing there pointing to his son's picture on the marquee, just popping his buttons with pride. Um, and then he expressed his, his pride in me and uh, told me how grateful he was, uh, proud of me and how grateful, grateful he was. That I didn't go into the insurance business. I know. I mean, he's probably like, "Whoa!" I mean, it must be something like that. It's like when I when I used to do I did stand up comedy for uh, years back east, and my father was the same way. You know, because I went to college, I had my degree until my name was finally yeah. in the paper. When my name was in the paper, it's like then you see the pride. You know, it's not until it's something that is tangible. You know, it's like. You know, oh yeah, you're doing this, you're going this. But when they see, when they see that name, like when your father probably saw you on Broadway, he probably was like, "Wow, you know, you've yeah. been in so many things before that." It was that defining moment to people who are older. It's like Broadway and the East Coast is like the epitome of acting. Well, it makes it real for our for our dads, you know, and you know, it's a generational thing. You know, our dads. I don't know about your dad. They've probably similarities, but they really just, they, they want us to be secure and happy and have some stability in our life. And, uh, uh, but it really, when they see us having success, it makes it real to them. And they think, huh, okay. And what I wanted my dad to get was that without his sacrifice, without his compromise, I would not have had the opportunity to pursue my passion. Now, now you said you, when that first role you got was on Broadway, when you weren't ready, now, now, how did you acclimate? Did you when you got that role? How long did it last? And did you start taking class again to increase your craft? I mean, because you know, getting cast, you said you know, at a younger age. I mean, newer out of school is a big, big thing. How do you go on from there? Well, let me let me back up a bit. Uh, there was another job that I had. Uh, that was my very first acting gig was in a movie called Goodbye Columbus and it was starring Allie McGraw and it was her very first it was her very first movie uh, and I was hired for a couple of weeks work on that picture and playing her boyfriend and I had one maybe two scenes and Steve I was so terrified on the set in front of the camera uh, I had no experience at all and I had one line, I think I, I asked her to dance, and my my voice cracked and broke, and I sounded like a soprano when I asked her to dance. <laughs> and uh, I said, may I have this dance? The director was so freaked out that he said, Jesus Christ, come on, do it again. <laughs> he, said, 
And I got through it, and I thought, oh, no, no. But that was the very first gig. Many years later, I ran into this director, and he asked me if I had learned how to act. And uh, <laughs> he was just breaking my stones, you know. Uh, but then I got to, to Broadway doing 40 Carats, and I realized I really had to get some technique because I was stricken with self-consciousness. So I, I started studying with a, uh, an iconic teacher named Lee Strasberg, and I learned some stuff. That was the beginning, and then I studied with Stella Adler. So I, I had, the, had the opportunity and pleasure of, of working with some of the most iconic acting teachers. Uh, and um, over the years, what this is my 50th year in the business. Uh, but I have to say that my greatest teachers have not been acting teachers per se, but have been the actors that I've worked with. Uh, Julie Harris, Julie Andrews, Glenn Close, uh, William Hurt. Uh, I've worked with Al Pacino. Uh, and watching them what they do, what they don't do, uh, the simplicity. Uh, there are very specific things that appeal to me that I have tried to incorporate in my skill set. And, and without going into a, a whole talk about acting, um, it's about being truthful. For me, it's about really being truthful. Uh, the performances that impress me, that touch me, that move me. And I have to say, I would rather be moved and touched than impressed uh, is simplicity, simple telling of truth. And uh, that's why I go to the theater. That's why I go to a movie. That's why I go to a concert is to be is to be moved. You know, I can watch guys shred on a guitar, but that doesn't that doesn't do anything for me. It's like, yeah, okay, that's cool. You spend a lot of time being able to do that, but it, does it touch my life? Does it change the way I think? No. And I think that that's why somebody like James Taylor really affects my life lyrically, uh, and it has to do with the pain that James has been through and survived the pain his addiction uh coming through it uh has informed uh informed his lyrics has informed the way he hears music the way he plays guitar um and i could cite examples of actors who have been through hard times and uh, it's the hard times that really inform the way an artist does their art it's yeah that is so true and now now when, when with the acting for you, you how long did you stay in new york i know you said you ended up coming out to the gangster chronicles you would did was that when you started to come out to la because of shadow here or were you still in new york when you when you booked that um i booked it in new york in 1979 1980 uh and i was under contract to universal studios from i had a three-year contract that was back in the days when they had contracts <clears throat> and uh, the first gig I had was at Universal uh, playing Dracula in a series called Cliffhangers. And uh, 
then it went from playing to playing Dracula. And I was so excited uh, at that time uh, to, to have a, a series. I thought, man, that's what a, what a gig, steady money. Uh, and what I did not factor in, in in all of my excitement was, wait a minute, you're playing Dracula. That means night shooting. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I, I, looked, I looked at the call sheet and it said, you know, normally, you know, it's like 7 a.m. report to set or 8 a.m., something like that. And I looked at the call sheet and it says, Michael Lurie, uh, 5 p.m. <laughs> Wrap at 5 a.m. And I thought, oh, my God, what have I gotten into? So, fortunately, it was a short-lived series. I think we only did 13 episodes, but it was, you know, I was cutting my teeth and uh, making some money. Now, I'm, I'm a big mobster fan. I don't know if you are. I love all the gangster movies. What was it like playing Lucky Luciano? That must have been, if you're a mob fan, that must have been cool, because he's like one of the mobsters, and he's got the one with the temper. Well, no, no, no. It was Bucky Siegel who had the temper. Uh, Lucky Luciano was, was quite considered in his uh, execution of power. Uh, it was Bugsy Siegel who was really off the rails. Uh, and I had a lot of time to, there was a writer's strike in 1980, so I had six months to prepare for this role. I went to Italy and made a point of meeting as many people as I, I could who might have had some kind of history or a story about Luciano. Um, I spent a lot of time in Little Italy um, talking to people. Uh, and when we came around to shooting the show in 1980, uh, they, Universal Studios was spending a lot of money on each episode. It was probably a, a million dollars an episode, which was a lot in 1980. Custom made uh, custom made custom wardrobe uh, it was uh, it was a, a, a great show with a wonderful cast and we were preempted by I think it was Hill Street Blues we were on NBC and the producers took a lot of heat for I think glorifying glorifying violence and uh and organized crime is what the problem some people had with it. So we, we had 13, uh, I think I have a, have a history of doing 13 episodes before they get gasped. But it was great playing Lucky Luciano. He was a fascinating character. It's a, getting into the, getting into the psyche and the psychology of these guys, uh, they were not doing, this is a time when there were no taxes. Uh, so to, to play a character who, uh, they live by a code, and they feel righteous and justified in, in living by that code. And they, there is honor among thieves. I love a, a, a Bob Dylan line. Bob Dylan says, it takes an honest man to live outside the law. Not that that has anything to do with these gangsters, but uh, it's just a great line. 
Now, after that series, did you start getting you know some juice in Hollywood? I mean, did people sit there and did they start you know, recognizing you more because it, you know it was you said it was a you played a gangster and it was a, a high price series? Did people start recognizing you and did you feel that difference when you went to the casting rooms? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, to answer your, your question about when I really moved out, I was staying in New York. Uh, and I would fly out to Los Angeles to, to do these gigs. And then I'd, I'd go back. I always go back to, to New York to be at my, my home and be with my family. Uh, but I think around the time that uh, I was still living at home in New York, I did Gangster Chronicles, went back to New York. And then in 1982, uh, I was pretty much broke. And because uh, I had been going back to do theater, off-Broadway theater. And um, then I got a call to uh, audition if I flew myself out to Los Angeles to fly myself out and, uh, and to meet a director named Sam Peckinpah, who was one of my favorite directors, and he was casting a movie. So I flew myself out, met him, and he said, you don't have to audition for me. And he was a he was a great guy. He was smoking, I don't know, camels or lucky strikes or something and wearing a bandana on his head. He was a real outlaw. He said, I want you to be in my movie. I said, great. When do we start? He says, next week. So that was on a Wednesday. The next day, now I'm just, I'm ecstatic. I have a chance to work with, uh, with Sam Peckinpah. I don't know if you know his movies, but he... He did The Wild Bunch, right. Straw Dogs, and uh, he's a real iconoclastic guy. So I was, I was over the moon about that. So the next day I get a call from my agent saying, read this script. Uh, just It it's, it's conflicts with the Peckinpah movie, but we want you to read it and see what you think. So I read it, and I liked it better than the Peckinpah script. And I went in to audition for it on Friday. I met with the director, a director named Adrian Line, and was offered the part in that movie. I couldn't do both. They were shooting at the same time. That movie was called Flashdance. And so... I had to say no to, of course, it's a, it's a, a unique, uh, an almost unique and very unusual and luxurious position to be offered the lead in two Hollywood studio movies. So it put my agent in a very positive bargaining position. Right. And uh, <laughs> so I had the chance to, to do Flashdance, and that's how Flashdance came about. Now, when you did Flashdance, because I'm 52, so I remember seeing it, I mean, I, you know, it was came out in 83 I believe I was I was my freshman year in college I was in is 83 when you when you read the script and you said you liked it but did you think and especially then because it, it wasn't you know if you broke it down and said to people you know like hey it's a movie with dancing most people would be like what did you think that it would have such an impact it did because that thing was huge I mean when you read it did you think it was just a great acting piece for you or did you think that it would get this big following and just people loving it. Yeah, no, Steve, nobody, nobody knew. Nobody knew. The director, the writers, nobody knew that it 
do, what it was going to do, and nobody ever knows what a movie is going to do. There are too many moving parts, too many variables. I just read it, and I thought, what a sweet story. And I, I, I liked the role, uh, and I really liked Adrian Lyne uh, from, from meeting him. Uh, just a lovely guy, and we're good friends to this day. But the surprise was when I went to the first screening with an audience, and I had never seen a film get a standing ovation at the end at the end of a movie. Uh, they were on their feet, and then they were out the door going to Tower Records to buy the album. So it was a it, it was uh, something of a phenomenon. Well, no. Uh, it, Go ahead. Yeah. No, how does how did now how does your life change? Because you know, I mean, you're you're an actor. You've been in a bunch of stuff, but now you're in a hit movie, and it was a movie that had fans across the board. I mean, guys liked it, women liked it, everyone liked it, and everyone. I mean, I had the soundtrack. We all remember the Michael Zambella Maniac video. We all remember all that stuff. But how does your life change? Because all of a sudden, people are seeing you on the big screen. Like when you went to see when you went to see the screening. Did people notice you in the audience when they were leaving? No, no. Uh, we were up in the we were up in the balcony, uh, way up in the back row, uh, up where the projector is. So nobody, no, nobody could see uh, where we were. Um, but one of the great things about it was that you know when you're in a when you're in a hit movie, uh, they the studio flies you around the world. Uh, to promote the movie, and that was really, really cool. Um, you know, everything was first class, and you're treated like royalty for a short period of time. <laughs> and uh, too short. And uh, just went to the premieres in, in, in London, in Europe, in Japan, and uh, it was a it was a great thrill. Uh, of course, it opened doors for me uh, when you're in a hit movie. Uh, then you get offers. And uh, I was offered a, another big movie that never got made because the studio was uh, taken over by somebody else. Um, and so much of this, uh, but one of, the, one of the fans of my work was a guy named Stephen Bochco who had Hill Street Blues. And he made me an offer. I remember I was in Japan, and uh, we had a phone conversation, and he offered me the role of, uh, in a, a show called Bay City Blues, which is about a double-A baseball team. And uh, so I took that and had a great time, and again, 13 episodes. <laughs> how does it, I mean, how does that, affect your psyche I mean you're getting work but and you come off a hit movie and you work with Bochco I mean that's awesome I mean these are problems everyone would love to have but how does it when you sit there when you go and and you had the other one the Dracula was of 13 episodes how does that sit there I mean do you sit there and do you start getting frustrated because you're like okay it's a Bochco show you think Bochco's it's a Bochco show you know I mean what goes through your mind when that happens um you know, truthfully, gratitude, uh, because when you're doing 
I, I don't know that any real actor, any really good actor, wants to play just one role for year year upon year. Uh, it's a great, great money gig. It provides you with great security. It's a it's a wonderful thing to have a hit series. Uh, but it's uh, for me, it was great. I would do thirteen episodes of something, make some make some good change, and then I'm available for for another gig. At this time in my life, uh, I would be very happy to do a series and. Uh, just had the steady work because I love, I love the family of going to a set, working with people, having steady work, having steady income. So, uh, you know, as we get older, our priorities change, and uh, I'm just uh, I'm grateful that the phone keeps ringing. Um, I just finished doing a wonderful project that's coming out next year called Woman Walks Ahead with Jessica Chastain. And I play her dad, and it's about a woman named Catherine Weldon, who in the 1880s defied her father and went out west to find, uh, to paint the uh, indigenous people, the Native Americans, and how she meets Sitting Bull. And Catherine Weldon painted the iconic portrait of Chief Sitting Bull that we all know that's in textbooks and that hangs in a museum. And it's, I tell you something, it's so special and wonderful when you come across a good, good writing. And this is going to be a wonderful film. The writing is so great, and Jessica Chastain is amazing. And the actor who plays uh, Michael Gray Eyes, who is uh, Native American, who, who plays Sitting Bull, is phenomenal. It's going to be a wonderful movie. Now, in a movie like that, how do you... Can you do research because the people are no longer with us? And how do you get into a period piece? Because, you know, language is different. I'm sure, you know, this, our speaking yeah. tone is different. How do you prepare for something that when it's not like, let's say, someone said place, you know, where we can, where you would replace someone from the early 1900, you know, just people when there's more film and stuff like that. How do you go about researching for a role like that? And how do you get yourself prepped and primed and then making sure that you're doing it right? That's a great question. And it's a very specific process. Uh, the wardrobe helps because it's of the period. And that really informs the way you, your posture, the way you walk, the way you stand. And then the dialogue, we had a, a, a great uh, dialect teacher uh, named Jessica Drake, who coached me in the speech patterns of that time of an upper middle class New York family. If you think, uh, if you think Roosevelt, if you think about Franklin D. Roosevelt, uh, very mannered, very deliberate, kind of clipped, tight-jawed, uh, kind of New England. It's very specific. So we broke that down, and that was a lot of, that was a challenge to, to do that. Instead of saying, been, been, I've been, I've been to the, I've been to the museum, I've been, 
details. Uh, and then I said, is, is the wardrobe and then the writing and then the sets. Um, when you walk onto a set that is of the period, everything goes into creating, making it as real as possible for the actors. And it makes it much easier for the actors to, uh, to be in character. Does that answer your question? Oh yeah, yeah, it was, yeah, because it is. Because I always wonder, because you know, when you when you really can't do the research, I mean, because as I say now, everything's online, but you don't really, you can't deal with it firsthand because there wasn't film, you know, and that's what it always fascinates me. And then just the costuming, you know, they get it from pictures, but it's amazing how authentic and true that this stuff, how they really do their job, and it just looks wonderful. Yeah. Well, with Luciano, you know, the, the, the wardrobe that was made, custom-made for, uh, for me to play Luciano, was just, was just great. You know, Jack Nicholson at one point said, uh, he said, let, I let the wardrobe do the acting. <laughs> right. Now, now... It, it really... Yeah. No, go, go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead. Now, I was going to say, after, like, I was going to say, with, with your career, like, after Flashdance, where, you know, you played that certain type of character, you know, how is your characters, because you've played all across the board... How did how have you seen your the characters that you get cast for change over the years? Because you know, in in Flashdance, you're a slick guy. You know, you're you're a cool guy. You know, stuff like that. Like, and then you you get into you know you expand as an actor. How have you seen your character arcs of what you get cast for change? At what points in your life did they start changing? Well, they change as as I get older. I look different, I look older, I am older, uh, and so I am considered for different kinds of roles. You know, once I was the the young, handsome, studly, leading guy, and now hopefully I'm seen as the older, studly, handsome <laughs> grandfather. <laughs> As long as they keep calling me, I don't know. But it, it becomes, it actually becomes more interesting as I, as I get older. The, the roles that I'm uh, called, to, uh, called to audition for or to play, much more interesting, more complex. There's wisdom. There's, um, there's mm, also, being the star of a movie is really overrated it's wonderful to not have to carry a show but to be a supporting member of a cast um and i've got to say going back to the beginning of our conversation where i was talking about the simplicity and how i appreciate simplicity uh, there is nothing like experience the the years that i've been doing this have brought me to a place that i hopefully become simpler and more honest in my portrayals. Uh, one of Strum's was, she said, a drop of blood is the same color as a gallon of blood. In other words, you don't have to show everything. All you have to do is really be simple and truthful and trust trust that by being truthful you will be interesting I think so many actors are uh, haunted 
and preoccupied, well, certainly we all crave attention. I think that's why we become actors in the first place. We're attention junkies. But uh, a sense of we are not enough, uh, combined with a sense of uh, exhibitionism, craving attention. And there's really nothing more powerful than watching somebody who is confident doing what they do. Uh, there's a feeling of security and of safety. When we watch James Taylor, and we watch him play, we know we're in good hands. When we watch Yo-Yo Ma play the cello, we know we are in good hands. When we watch Pavarotti sing, we feel safe. When we watch Pacino act, we know that we are taken care of. Uh, so that's one of the things that I enjoy as I get older, is just realizing that I don't have to be acting my ass off. I can just <laughs> be truthful. Be simple and be truthful. Now, earlier, you said when your father saw you on Broadway, I was in 97, I believe. Is that what you said? Yeah. Now, how... 97, did, yeah, yeah, that's right. How, okay. how did you end up back on Broadway? Because it seems, you know, because you know, I always look at IMDb. You're... You're working. I mean, you're you're IMDb. I always say if, if there's over a hundred credits, it's crazy. You know, you know those people work, but you seem to be working all the time. How did you gravitate back to Broadway? And was it something that you? Was there a point where you said I want to get back to that, or have that whole that go happen? Because a lot of times people don't go back to stage because they get used to making a good living and then they have bills and they don't get the chance to do certain shows. How did you end up getting? back to Broadway, and was it something that you were very, very excited for? Yes. I was doing, in 95, <clears throat> I was doing a production of South Pacific with Sandy Duncan in Los Angeles. Uh, one of my favorite, all-time favorite uh, musicals, uh, playing Emile Debeck, and uh, at some of the greatest music, uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein, some of the greatest music ever written for for stage. Uh, I was on my way to a matinee. I stopped off at a restaurant in Los Angeles to pick up some lunch for the road, and I was approached by a fellow named Tony Adams, who was Blake Edwards' producing partner, who invited me to come over to the table and meet Blake Edwards, who said to me, we're doing a production. <clears throat> we're thinking of taking Victor Victoria have you ever seen it? And I said, yes, I have. Um, and uh, he said, we're thinking of taking it to Broadway. Uh, would you consider auditioning for us for the James Garner role? And he said, uh, do you sing? And I and I said, does your dad bite? <laughs> and quoting his, uh, you know, Inspector Clouseau. So we did that. Uh, I invited him to come see... Uh, to come see a, a, a performance of South Pacific, and he came backstage with Julie, and he said, let's go to Broadway. And within two, three months, we were in rehearsal. Uh, I did not have to, uh, I did not have to think about uh, whether I was gonna do that or not. I mean, that was, uh, that was a gift when Blake Edwards and Julie Julie Andrews offer you a gig. 
another highlight for me was doing a national tour of South Pacific right after 9-11. We were in rehearsals in New York uh, at Union Square on the morning of 9-11. And uh, we experienced that uh, very personally. And we went on the road. I mean, thank God the, the producers decided to take it on the road at that time. South Pacific, <clears throat> for your listeners who may not know the play, is about a time in U.S. history when the United States was at war in two fronts with Japan and with Germany, in Japan and the South Pacific. And uh, it's the music is brilliant. It's about um, it's about prejudice. It's about social prejudice. It's about uh, well, um, we did that for six months, and we went from city to city at a time when this country was grieving and uh, serious mourning, and we raised. I think about $3 million for the families. <clears throat> After every performance, we would go into the audience and take up collections for for the victims of 9-11. That was the single most rewarding experience of my 50 years in the business. Well, what, would, what went through your mind when you went to do these shows? Because you're right, everyone was in mourning. You also are in mourning, and I know acting is your job, but did you feel a certain pressure that you didn't feel before because you knew people wanted, we were, we were starving for entertainment, but we didn't know how to react if we could enjoy. What goes through your head, especially that first performance you did after 9-11, what goes through your head as a performer and do you go on stage in the same mind frame as usual or do you sit there and say, this is, has to be magical? No, no. We, 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 yeah. First part of your question. Uh, uh, it was emotional. We were all, we were all just raw emotion. Um, we were in shock. So there was not a lot of intellectualizing about what was going on. There was a feeling of unity, uh, and I think that these people had bought their tickets in advance, otherwise I don't think they would have uh, been going on an outing. But there they were, and what was so stunningly moving and emotional was at the end, I asked the producers if we might, at curtain call, sing God Bless America. And they liked the idea, so the curtain came down, curtain went up, cast members from side to side on stage had our arms around each other held each other's hands and we led the audience uh, and the orchestra played God Bless America and I have to tell you uh, it was there wasn't a dry eye in the house for six months and we got to experience wow the unity about what is what's possible when we are when we're together, I, and that's that's that is one of the wonderful things about about the arts, uh, whether it's theater or if it's a musical concert, 
anything that unifies us, that brings us together uh, in for healing. Uh, you know, I, I just saw a piece on today on uh, Facebook about the healing that's going on about the, the vets who asked forgiveness of the Native American tribes for the things that have been done for the uh, all of the many horrible things that have been inflicted on the indigenous people. And you've got these vets in uniform kneeling before these old Native American Indians and asking for forgiveness. And it was just incredibly, uh, it's the beginning of healing, uh, is humility and asking for forgiveness is very, very moving. So uh, South Pacific, six months of that, seeing that people are not, not that different. We all want to feel safe. We want to feel good. We want to laugh. We want to have fun. And uh, I think, you know, most of all, we want to feel safe. Because if you don't feel safe, it's hard to laugh. Right. I wanted to ask you also about the stage when when you were on with uh, with on Broadway for that night with Julie and Blake Edwards. What went through your mind on that night? Because you know you're you're in cahoots with legends. I mean, what as an actor are you are you a little worried that you might not be able to hold the candle? Or what went through you that opening night? when it was a big show on Broadway. Well, I mean, because it's like anything. It's like a rookie, not because you're a seasoned actor, but you're going in with a, legends. You know, what is it? what was that like for you? I mean, does that put some adrenaline in you and turn up your volume? Or how did, how did you handle that first night? And then when did you sit there and go, hey, man, this is all awesome? I was nervous. I was very nervous. Julie was nervous. Blake was nervous. Everybody was nervous. Uh it's impossible not to be nervous on, a, on an opening night. Um, and the world was there in the audience uh, in black tie, which was really nice. Um, we were rehearsed to the max. So um, there was no way that it was not going to be really, really good. And it was. Um, but I felt so acknowledged, welcomed, appreciated, and respected by my fellow cast members, by Julie, by Blake, that however neurotic my thoughts might have been, uh, my, my neurotic thoughts didn't have a chance being in the supportive company that I was in. So I just said, you know, let's get on with the job here and <laughs> have fun. Now, now you said you rehearsed to the max. Now you've done TV, movies, uh, you know, Broadway, stage. You've done soap operas. How is the difference for all of them getting ready? Because you know you rehearse to the max on Broadway. I know soap operas. Everyone says you have to learn a lot of stuff on short notice. TV, you know, they can now, especially now, they can cut and start again. How do you do? You just do you come to the plate the same, or do you sit there when it's theater? You know, you are going to do a different style of acting and soap operas or TV or movies. Well, in theater, in theater, you have rehearsal time. 
which is one of the <coughs> one of the luxuries about theater is that you have you have weeks to rehearse. Uh, television, you have very little time to rehearse. Uh, one of the rare exceptions was in Damages with Glenn Close, because it was Glenn, and because Glenn is very smart, uh, insisted on having sufficient rehearsal time uh, before doing scenes. But television, by nature, uh, has a very limited amount of rehearsal time. Movies, you have some rehearsal time. Uh, and uh, I'm sorry, what was your question? No, how do you get prepared for all of them? I mean, you know, it's like, do you, how do you go about, you have rehearsal time, but how do you go about learning your lines and, and then getting ready for each oh. one? Yeah, well, I try to try to know my lines in, in, in television. Uh, well, I've got to know my lines. You, you, in, in, in theater, uh, you want to know your lines pretty much. You, you have time in the theater. You don't have to show up on day one necessarily when you've got three weeks of, of rehearsal because scenes are going to change. The writing is going to change. But uh, it's my responsibility. Uh, my job is to show up prepared and, and to have most, if not all, of the lines uh, committed to memory. In television, absolutely on day one, that has to be the case. And on, I like to be—I like to have the, all of my lines learned by the on, on day one when I show up. Now, you said you'd like you play guitar. When did you start playing guitar? Started playing when I was about nine or ten. We had a foreign exchange student named Maria de Alvarenga, who was from Sao Paulo, Brazil. She was about 17. She came and stayed with us for a week and she brought her guitar. I had such a crush on her. She gave me the guitar and that's how I started playing guitar. Now, do you do you play a lot? And what kind of music do you write? I play every day. Um, I play acoustic. I don't play any electric anymore. Acoustic, I keep a guitar by the bed. So that's the last thing I do before I go to sleep at night is play the guitar. I keep one down in the living room and uh, so that it's always there I can just go pick it up and I play mostly um, I, Celtic I like Celtic music that's in my blood my mom's Irish so I've, I've got that in my blood now how many guitars do you have total four and which is your favorite four is, is it a Martin do you have a Martin or what's your favorite guitar I no longer have a Martin I have, well, one of my favorites is a Santa Cruz, uh, and then I have a Sobel, S-O-B-E-L-L, -L, uh, that's a custom-made guitar for me, uh, by a wonderful luthier in uh, Northumberland in England. And then uh, a Collings, which was uh, made for me, that's another custom guitar. And uh, then I have, what else do I have? I've got one other one. Uh, obviously, don't play it very often. Right. <laughs> okay, it's uh, I got a, uh, another question for you here about uh, about flash dance. Have you noticed because of now everyone everything the eighties are all coming back? Have you noticed that a younger fan base has reached out to you because they're seeing flash dance and that stuff, the retro stuff, is coming back? Um. I've noticed that a lot of 
grandmothers, attractive grandmothers, <laughs> approach me. <laughs> what do they say? And they say, you're hot. They say, so are you. I forget that I'm a grandfather. You know, in my mind, I'm still like, you know, back there when, when we made the movie. But I'm looking at, at these grandmas uh, you know, holding their grandchildren saying, wow, I remember you when, wow. You know, I said, well, thank you. I remember me when I was wow, too. <laughs> now, now, besides that movie you told us about with uh, Chastain, what else is coming up? You know, and what, what, what experience have you had in the last year that you really enjoyed working on? Yeah, I worked on a play in London in September uh, called Mend, M-E-N-D, and we're going to take it to London next November. Uh, it's a comedy. It's an original play that friends of mine have written, and I'm very excited to, uh, to be doing that. And then I am uh, very excited about the possibility of playing Zorba the Greek, uh, bringing the musical back. Uh, but that is my passion play. Now it seems like you're one of the one of the. I mean, I've talked. I talked to a lot of actors have their own careers. You're one of the few that is actually going back to stage. Is that just because of do you? Is it the love of the acting? Because it's grueling. You know, what I mean, it's 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 a lot of work. It's a lot of work. It's uh, it's 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 thrilling. There is nothing like being on stage. It is so thrilling. It's so alive. You get to tell the story from the beginning, uh, the middle and the end, instead of having it all chopped up. It's um, it's it's scary, uh, and, I, and I, there's a very real correlation between fear and uh, I mean, fear is just a fear is just uh, it, 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 excitement that hasn't been released yet, and uh, so I, I love that. Uh, I, I love being doing things that that scare me and overcoming the fear and having it turned into excitement. I remember being in the wings at Carnegie Hall with Patrick Stewart. Uh, we were doing a benefit performance for the Queen Noor of Jordan. Uh, and uh, B.B. Newworth was, was there. And we, we all had, we were all marveling at this phenomenon that happens about having sweaty palms and dry mouth. And we looked at each other and said, why do we do this to ourselves? This is torture. We, we were all like really nervous about going out and doing what we were going to do. And then, of course, we get through it and we did wonderfully and the curtain came down, standing ovation, and we looked at each other and we said, this is why we do it. That is, I mean, that's what's great about it. Now, now how, do you think, how are you trying to get Zorba the Greek made? Yeah. I am trying to round up people, uh, producers. I want to get people to back it. And it doesn't have to be Broadway necessarily, uh, although that would be that would be great fun. Uh, but this would really just be my passion play, to, to play Zorba in whatever time I, um, I have left. Uh, with the energy that I have, I still have a lot of energy. Zorba really talks to me. Uh, the, the character speaks to me. Cousin Zakis's writing really talks to me. It's about somebody who is so passionate about living life to the fullest. Um, so 
it's I am gathering people together who are interested in doing it and uh, seeing where we might put it up and whether it, uh, I mean, the, wherever it ends up is not really my concern. It's just to, to be able to do it, whether it's at a local playhouse in, uh, in Los Angeles or in London, big, small, I don't care. I just want to do it. That's awesome. I, I'm glad we got to do this. I'm glad we got to talk. I, uh, we, 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 I always tell my friends, I go, with some guests, we just, everyone's busy. And now that I record out of my place, it's easier. But I think I started talking to you about a year ago, and I'm glad I, I saw you on something and I reached out again. Now, do you tweet at all? Are you on Twitter? I know you're on Facebook. Are you on Twitter? I don't, I don't, I don't tweet. I don't even know. I don't know how to do it. Okay. And I, aren't you limited to the, the number of figures? 147. Yeah, or something like that. But, uh, uh, but so, yeah. but, but people can check you out on Facebook and, uh, and, yeah. and people check out, go to INDB. I always tell you this, you know, he, an impressive career. Go find some of the old stuff, find some of the new stuff. See his movies coming out next year, but just, Follow Michael Nori because you know he's, he's been working forever, and hopefully we'll see him on Zorba the Greek. So I want to thank you, Michael, and uh, people. I want to thank you for listening. Uh, you can tweet at me. I'm at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. Also, you can go to my website, CooperTalk.net. I have over 570 episodes. You can email me there, Cooper at CooperTalk.net. I will get back with you. Sometimes I forget to look at that email because I book my guests in a different email, and I go through Facebook. But send me an email. I will get back to you. Also, Instagram, Words with Friends. It's Cooper Talk One. On Instagram, you'll see a lot of promotion for my show and food pictures. Because you remember a few years ago when I had that health scare, I got out of the hospital and I wrote a cookbook. It's called Stop the Salt. You can go to my website, stopthesalt.com. It's 120 low-sodium recipes. It's healthy. They're easy to make. There's, not, there's no pictures, guys, because I know we get intimidated by pictures in cookbooks. No pictures. No long list of ingredients. If you don't have cumin, don't worry. There's no cumin in there. I cook with cumin, but I'm more advanced. I, I brought it up a level since then. So go buy that. You can get it at Barnes & Noble or Amazon.com, both websites. But get it at StopTheSalt.com because I make more money, and I'll even assign it for you. And that's what it's about. So please, don't forget. Go INDB Michael Nori. Check out his past work. Go check out Flashdance again. And if you're a hot grandmother, if you're a hot grandmother, check it out. And he's looking great now, too. You go to his IMDb or Google, you know, you'll be going, wow. And so you hot grandmothers, and I have some I'm friends with, you'll be sitting there going, wow, that Michael Nori, he looks great, and he's a grandfather. So follow him. Follow me. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, have a great weekend, and I'll talk to you guys next week.